Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ culture and the church. Hey everyone, this is Morgan and I am in the studio with my co-host Aaron. Hey guys. And Steven. Salutations and greetings. And today we are talking about part two of our discussion on refugees and immigrants titled When Stranger Becomes Neighbor. So we hope you stick around for the episode ahead. All right, guys, well, we are picking up where we left off last week as we were talking about refugees and immigrants and, and everything in between <laughs> and everything in between. And today we're going to take some time to talk about when stranger becomes neighbor. But but before we jump into that and talk about that, I just would like to ask you guys uh, your stories of, of moments when stranger has become your neighbor. And with that, also, I think you 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 have this clashing of culture, right? Oh, yeah. And, and oftentimes people don't know the cultural norms of another country. And so have, have either of you ever experienced just the awkwardness of just not knowing what to say or how to like something happened that? Yeah, I oh, I have so many stories, um, but it's it is it's so funny. And that's just one of those things when when these other, you know, these strangers and all this otherness, like it becomes real people that you interact with on the day to day, especially from vastly different cultures, like people from a Middle Eastern or Persian background. Right. Oh, there was this one time when I was working my internship at CCC and um, this this family came in and it was just the men um my co-worker um at the time he he's he was from um the central asia area and he so he understands all the cultural cultural nuances and i would follow his lead but then sometimes i'd forget like oh i'm a woman it is different for me so he stood up greeted them shook all their hands so it was like hi i'm morgan and i like put out my hand and then the gentleman was so kind he just placed his hand on his heart he said very nice to meet you and i was like Oh my gosh, that was so embarrassing because I knew this. Like I'd studied, you know, different cultural differences, but right. I was in the moment. I was going for it, and that handshake did not happen. Did not. But did the, not. It was a little awkward. But it was the thought that counts, right? Right. right. I think and, he probably and, understood that. And he that. was so gracious. Yeah. He was like, "Oh, this poor little American girl." <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember being in India and stuff. We would have to be very conscious of like if we were entering into someone's home or a holy place, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, Shoes are a no-no, right? And so you have to be very conscious of like where you're going. I mean, you have to remember too, like some of the places you're going, you want to wear shoes, but (laughs) you might not be able to. And so it was just a matter of, you, like you always look. So like I always tried to be the second person into the door. Right. Um, to see if the and shoes I always try to send like one of my Indian counterparts or friends through the door. And I'm like, you go and I'll follow exactly what you do and just stare at their feet and stare at their feet. Oh, they're keeping their shoes on. Okay. So I'm you wouldn't like on. defile the place on accident? <laughs> yeah. I'm mean, like, you're going to defile the place. It's not going to be me. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I uh, handled some of that was because I, I mean, I remember going to um, one of the uh, temples there. I think it, it was a Sikh temple and you had to take off your shoes. Right. Mm-hmm leave them on the street. So first of all, I'm like, okay, what if somebody takes my shoes? And I was like, oh, I'm an Indian. Nobody wears my size. My <laughs> size like is three times bigger than all of this. I was like, we're good there. So I'll just leave the shoes. But then you had to like wash your feet in like a little stream that mm-hmm. ran through. They had like a little man-made stream. And you had to wash your feet and then you had to walk through it. So it was just like remembering those cultural cues and not stepping over. Because if you did, you have like literally like just ruined 
everything with your relationship. That's so true with the shoes. Because I know my stepfather is Chinese and his family is Chinese. And so going to their family and actually thinking about it now, um, I don't know how the whole process was, but I know that my grandfather fled China under persecution. Wow. And I remember the story. He swam eight hours. Um, what? He swam eight hours from China to uh, Taiwan. Oh, my uh, gosh. And um, then he to and I don't even know how legal some of the stuff was, but, you know, <laughs> a so, long time ago. It's OK. So, yeah. But <laughs> they happened. are documented. Uh, <laughs> Citizens now they are <laughs> wonderful and but he came to the Americas and he saved up money in Taiwan and then he filed papers and they the whole process of coming as immigrants into the country I would assume and, shoes are no no though oh, in their man, home yeah very much and actually so much so that we embrace that in our home right so like mm-hmm. when people would come over we had like a shoe like most people you just come in their house but like we're living in southern culture like down in Tennessee <laughs> well we have the shoe rack like when you yes. enter our home and uh, I remember I, I used to, I grew up with it so I just thought it was normal everybody takes their shoes off and I could remember like going to my friend's house and being like what you like, kick your shoes you off you leave your shoes off like that was just that was like oh no but it was one of those cultural things that yeah so that was cool like growing up in a in a home like that because there was he not only was my stepdad chinese but he was also deaf so there was like wow clash kind of, of like cultures two, yeah two cultures kind of because deaf culture ha- is really its own culture mm-hmm. uh, in in many ways so um i was just curious what stories y'all had yeah, because that's awesome. yeah but we're, what we want to do is we want to make this personal today right because we're talking about when stranger becomes neighbor and, you know, last time, if you didn't go back and listen, we hope that you would. But last time we really laid an, a good working understanding of what is a refugee, what is an immigrant, what is the global uh, refugee crisis today. And we're not going to take time to define all those things. So if you're missing definitions, you need to go back and listen to the first episode. Put Push pause on this. Go back and listen to the first episode. And really, we gave a really uh, solid foundation of what God says about it. Because when you look at God's word over a hundred times in the Bible, the word sojourner or foreigner or uh, stranger aliens is used. And we see that God's heart is for all nations. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that uh, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink and I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And he goes through all of these examples of people. And then then people asked him, they said, well, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? And Jesus said, well, as you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And so Jesus identifies himself as this stranger uh, to be welcomed. And last time we were talking about just the way that the world demographic is so shifting and so rapidly changing when you think about the number of immigrants and refugees mm-hmm. that are coming into different cultures um, and, and I guess in different nations and countries, uh, countries is the word I was looking for, then what happens with that is that everything becomes a lot more personal because mm-hmm. now these cultural differences are not halfway around the world, but they're existing right there in your backyard or maybe yeah, the neighbor that you live with. Beside, Yeah, I mean, we live in such a global world. Um, not only are there it, just the fact that uh, displaced people and, and migrants exist, but that it's so 
easy to get around. Um, I mean, with plane travel, people aren't mm-hmm. spending weeks and weeks on boats anymore. I mean, you can be around the other side of the world in what, like 48 hours or less, less than you that. know, depending, depending your on your layovers. Yeah, depending you know, those connection flights. But it, <laughs> but we are, we're just in a, the in globalization. A glo- yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy. And that's that's had a huge impact on the way that um, we, we now have the nations at our doorstep. Yeah, globalization and technology, because mm-hmm. I think we have to be honest in how much well, let me just ask you guys this question. How much do you think people's perceptions of immigrants and refugees has been shaped by the media? Oh, I think most of their information comes from the, the popular media and mainstream. Yeah, well, and also popular media and then also Facebook. Uh, you got to remember Facebook. Um, great media guys, source. Facebook is like the I'm Wikipedia of Facebook news, fast. by the way. Just letting y'all know. You, you should have, you should have Stephen we, and I and a few I friends, think, we fasted yeah, well, the month of February. I'm, well, I kind I'm of behind did. the ball on this. So. <laughs> I kind of did, but I already don't like getting on Facebook enough. And I had to get on the church Facebook. So I kind of did, Oof, but I kind of okay. dropped out a little so, bit. Yeah. I'm, but still I was there. In the middle. I'm still there. But did you know that on your iPhone, you can have screen limits on all of your apps? Yes. I did that. Like that's supposed to be like a children's setting i think like i'm doing it for myself <laughs> no like, it's good i i have done that for a lot of my apps and things that i use and it's really shown me like i'm just it's helping me shape the way yeah uh, that i use my media emily time i've done that emily will come to me and she'll be like can you put the code in <laughs> <laughs> i need a few more minutes on here <laughs> pinterest expired <laughs> the whole thing like drops i mean yeah. Yeah, that would be the way to do it to get your spouse well, or something oh, yeah, to set up your code that's how we do you. it we don't, ha- we don't know our codes because i will have a moment of honesty the other week i was like working through my phone and I was on Facebook and stuff and all of a sudden like I click and it's like boom you've timed out and I'm uh, like what no way so I just go back in and I update the minutes a few minutes but if I had done that with Jessica and made Jessica my password yeah that's what I need to do good accountability I need, but like I need more the thing right I mean we have so much media that we're consuming that honestly uh, a lot of it is not true it's very skewed and biased by opinion and the public perception of refugees and immigrants and undocumented immigrants and and special immigrants and all of these all of these things is mostly informed by just what they're hearing from other people who are probably less informed than they are trying to inform people with incorrect information. I would agree with that. And I would say in addition to most of it being skewed one way, most of what we hear is probably negative. I mean, oh, when you hear, yeah. I mean, just the way that I think world news and media tend to celebrate the negative things well it's because generally that's what people our modern media has gone away from actually covering factual events into giving their interpretation and opinion on factual events and it's sensationalized a lot of times and they they want to um i mean it's inflammatory a Mm -hmm. lot of it is yeah I i remember i can't i remember like you just like look at different like parts of like what's happening in the world and then you talk to somebody who's actually there and they're like oh yeah it's nothing like that you know (laughs) like it's either way worse or it's it's not even close to being that bad you know and it's like the idea that like they're just trying to get a story yeah and so i think that when you when we partake of so much media we can get an idea of refugees immigration Mm -hmm. and whatever for the foreigner among you that is very jaded into whatever type of media we're consuming yeah so so just out of you guys, um, I'm I'm a little bit biased in the good way, I guess, because I know a bit more about the actual definitions and situations. But from people who are outside of the world of refugee resettlement, what what is the common, um, let's say, like emotions or things that you've gleaned from just mainstream media about refugees? What is the most that you've seen? 
Well, I know we've talked about this, like, mm-hmm. and and I think my first initial understanding, well, I would say this, I would say the most common perception that people probably have is fear, mm-hmm. is fear, because yeah, that's agree. what's fueled by media. I mean, like we were saying, we're not here to talk about immigration and the process of that today. But I, I think, irregardless, what we do want to say is that oftentimes there that that whole narrative of a story of what's being told is, is being portrayed or propped up on that pedestal of fear Mm -hmm. because fear of what it'll do to our country, fear of what it'll do to jobs, fear of what it'll do uh, personally. I mean, I think you have to be willing. We we mentioned this last time, but I think you have to be willing to understand the way that cultural uh, events, world events have a way of shaping perception i mean look at what happened in a post 9-11 world look at mm-hmm. look at what did happen in the paris attacks and the way that that just had a way of shaping people's perception about what we're talking about today so i just think you have to be honest and recognize that there is fear that exists whether it's stated most often it's probably subtle mm-hmm. and then uh, with that it would be prejudice i mean i think we've been bringing that out over the season this year um, and, and pointing out prejudices that exist, um, maybe that are much more deeper than people would realize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I would say as much on a media perspective, as much as just like growing up in a post nine eleven world, you know, I was a 94 baby, so I was six. So I had a, I remember everything about nine eleven. I was old enough to remember. Mm-hmm. And then growing up after that, it was kind of just feeding into the cultural perspective after that, you know, and like we talked on the last episode, that was a traumatic event. Um, you can't downplay the trauma that nine 11 was in our country. Cause that was a shaping event for my generation and mm-hmm. your generations. And, um, but because we don't live in a vacuum, there was some forgottenness and some things that were born out of that, that, we didn't really think about when it came to refugees. I think there was cultural you know? bias that came there was. from that. Right. I mean, and I, I think, remember seeing that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think even in my own life, I remember like growing up, um, anytime I'd go on a, f- a flight, which was very often because of my dad's work and stuff, I would be on airplanes a lot. I remember anytime I would see somebody in a turban, I'd be like, sit up like this, you know? But it wasn't until later when I went to India and I started really like being one-on-one with, um, Islamic people, Hindu mm-hmm. Sikh people. I figured out Sikhs are actually the ones that are wearing the turbans generally. Uh, you can put a 99% for chance on it. If you see somebody in a turban, they're not Islamic. They're actually probably Sikh, which is one of the most peaceful religions in the world. And even Islamic people mm-hmm. are mostly peaceful. And I remember working one-on-one with them in India and how that changed my cultural perspective of, you know what? Yes, this happened in the past, and yes, this affected me personally. However, there is all of this over here that I have to take into account as I move forward. But that right. one event with a handful of terrorists, which, I mean, it was horrible what happened in our country, that one event had the power, the ability to color your perception yeah, for a number of years yeah, after that. Right? Yeah, for me personally. And I would also ask the question, too, though, did 9-11 trigger the fear and prejudice or did it just play on the seeds that were already there? Because I think if you look in our country, we have become what we claimed we never would. Mm. We are the melting pot that said everybody come because we want to be this one nation. And then we have become an exclusive 
uh, yeah. nation, which is what we set out to not become. And we've become what we were not. And I don't know if I'd say 9-11 created it as much as it exasperated, just like the pandemic didn't create a lot of issues. They exasperated a lot of issues, you know? Exacerbated is actually exasperated. the word I was just going to use. Yes. Exacerbated because it, it just took all of these. You're right. They were. I think they were lying right under the surface. Um, and then when 9-11 happened, it was like, you know, our, our deep-seated fears came true. You know, these people from this other religion that are so violent, they, they came with intent to to kill and to cause detrimental harm and, and to be fear mongers, you know, and, and, and threatening. And that was the intention of all of the uh, attackers mm-hmm. at 9-11 in, you know, in the name of their, their own religion and their mm-hmm. own teachings that they followed fundamentally. And, um, but you're right. We, it's it's so funny, and I say we like as a nation have forgotten our roots. In a sense, we all came from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we all were the foreigners, and that's another topic you can go on to with how we treated the natives of this land, um, and still do today. But it, it is just so interesting how much we are um, in the mindset of refugees will will. Um, it will do harm to our, our safety as a nation. Yeah. And, I, I, and think our, it's, yeah. I think it's the mindset that refugees will always do harm to the yeah. safety of our nation. Because like we talked last week, there has to be some type of balance and leadership sure. in it. And we reference Germany, well, right? Let's talk about Germany for a second. There has to be some type of no, balance. Let's talk about Germany, but I want to circle back to make one point. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, when Germany, like, it, they they set out to do a good thing to alleviate the burden off of those neighboring countries of Lebanon and Jordan um, and, and Turkey even. And, you know, so Greece opened their borders. Germany opened their borders. And, and what happened was there wasn't enough structure to, to handle that. So they faced serious threats to their national security. The crime rate did increase um, just because of a mass influx of people. And, you know, it, it also informed the fear that, um, well, I, these groups of refugees could be infiltrated by terrorists. And, you know, th- there were several horrific crimes committed in mm-hmm. Germany. But, you know, then you have all these people and suddenly you have to lock them down into a camp and it, the camp becomes a prison. And mm-hmm. so how much better off are they mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah, a so prison there does have in to be country? a balance there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, though, earlier, I think um, – this is not a new thing. No. Right? Like what we're trying to say is this is not a new thing. The fear, attitudes of fear, attitudes of prejudice, um, even attitudes of apathy, mm-hmm. um, you know, even in the face of injustice or things like that. Like those are not new things. I mean, look at, look at the gospel. Look at, look at, look at what Jesus dealt with in his day as Jesus was confronting the perceptions and the minds of people who looked at other people uh, with disdain. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about the Samaritans. You think about the way the Samaritans were treated by the Jews. You you think about the way, yes, the foreigners were to be protected in God's law in the Old Testament, and they were to be welcomed. They were to uh, be included, even in their worship. Why? So that they could learn to fear the Lord. But, yeah. but, but, but what happens is, I think it's just human nature. We look at people that are not like us, and because they're not like us, we instantly say that's wrong, mm-hmm. or, or you know, so so we become the standard personally of what is right, and mm-hmm. and Jesus confronts that in in the royal law yeah. when he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. Because your neighbor would be the person you would most likely avoid. Mm-hmm. And and this is not just an, an American issue. And, and there's an anthropology term for it called ethnocentrism. Mm-hmm. When you believe your own ethnicity or nationality is better and should be the standard of measurement for all others. 
Americans don't just have that. That's that's pretty universal among every single culture. Uh, you find ethnocentrism. You know, we think we're the best. Okay, and take take radical Islam for example. There's a lot of ethnocentrism there, and mm. why there's so much hatred of the West. You know, but the gospel takes an axe to that. It does because the gospel levels all of it and yep. shows that um, Jesus came. He identified as a stranger, as a foreigner. I mean, we even mentioned last time Jesus was a refugee. He was a refugee. You know, so but but Jesus, he he comes and in his coming to redeem a fallen world, he transforms our life. His his story of what he is calling us to is far better uh, than than what that ethnocentrism or whatever mm-hmm. we would try to esteem for ourselves. Because I mean, the gospel just takes an axe to that, and it shows that no, we um, we are redeemed in Christ, and now we are citizens of His kingdom. Mm-hmm. And and there's now one value system. I mean, there's one culture. If you want to think about it that way, I mean, what what is what is exemplified? What is modeled? I mean, it's Matthew yeah. five. I mean, those that is the flag. I mean, when I read Jesus's uh, Sermon on the Mount, like that is the the flags of of his kingdom. Like this is what his kingdom is marked by, and what his kingdom is is identified as. Mm-hmm. And so the gospel levels it. I think I mean, yeah. we talked about that last time, but I think it's important to lay the foundation before we start working forward. We can't work forward and just purely human thinking or human ways of trying to resolve the crisis or even Mm -hmm. deal with, you know, personal fear or prejudice. We need the gospel to transform us and transform hearts Mm -hmm. uh, that could lead to really lasting change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are even I love just. You know, the foundation of the gospel is so much that leveling of the playing field and and reminding people who we are. And and I think certain events throughout this this decade or so of just mass refugee uh, exile, there are certain events that happen to kind of take us back to that and and reminding people and really putting a human face on these massive numbers of refugees. Give us us one or two of those that have really helped. I Our think culture. one of the most significant um, was in 2015 when um, the picture emerged, and most people will probably recognize what I'm talking about, but if you don't, um, just, you know, you can Google drowned Syrian boy. And, and in 2015, um, there was the body of a three-year-old that washed up on the shores of Turkey um, who he was a ref- he was a, he was a Syrian, so he was um, escaping the the crisis there in the civil war. And um, what came about was that he was probably on one of these overcrowded boats trying to get from um, the coast to coast um, and and escape. And and when this picture emerged, and I have it in our notes, and we can probably list the article that I pulled it from in our show notes, so um, those who aren't familiar can see it as well. But um, when when the world saw this this baby face down on the shores of a foreign country that wasn't his own, it became everybody's child. You know, this right. this boy could belong to anybody. There are moms and dads all over the world, and I don't even have kids. And you know, clearly this is it's tragic. And and it's it's not just a tragedy, but it's the fact that a mother and a father lost their son, and they lost the future they thought they had in in their baby. You know, and so I think this is one of those things that just reminds us they, they're people. They're not just mm-hmm. numbers. They're not right. just statistics. Mm-hmm. It's not right. some foreign outside of us world that we can't understand. And we I, understand yeah, this. That's important because I, I think it goes back to just it. They're not it's. 
Um, it's like when people call their babies it and it makes me so upset and annoyed because it's not an it, it's a human. And the same goes for refugees. They're not it's, they're not, they're not just a generalization. They're not just this type of thing that's out there. Refugee is a person and, um, we have to view them as people and there, there has to be a humanizing, a rehumanizing almost of refugees, I think in our minds. Yeah. Because I think there's a, there's an element where when we hear a statistic, it is so impersonal and 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 often probably the the narratives or the stories that we're hearing about even the global refugee crisis today has become very impersonal that you know if there's not that attitude of fear and prejudice and there's probably an attitude of apathy which is it's like just too abstract for it us is to connect so with beyond me or it's so far away or it's another part of the world and and we would grieve and we would even say well if i was there i would i would want to do something different but there's that element of 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 it being removed that somehow we can silence um, our own willingness to get involved in the mess of others, if I could use it that way. Like, you know, and I think what we're trying to show on the podcast today is strangers, not others, strangers, your neighbor. Mm -hmm. yeah. For very many people listening to this podcast, they probably can think about a literal neighbor uh, that is either an immigrant or an, a refugee or yeah. somebody or like, or even somebody within their community, within a stone's throw from their house. So, you know, the globalization of the world has brought uh, the gospel opportunities to us. And I think, yes, Jesus calls us to go into all the world and make disciples, but that word go is literally a participle. It means going, like as you're going, yeah. make disciples. And I think as we are going uh, in the places where God has called us, where he has placed us, where we live, there is inevitably people that we are passing by. There are people that we're interacting with who would very much fit into this definition of what we're talking about here on the podcast. And and so we want to talk about a little bit today some steps forward. And I think before we can talk about some really steps forward, we at least have to admit some of the broken links in the system. And yeah. once again, we're not here to try and broad brush and just um, – you know, point out the problem and be like, well, if that could get fixed, then then everything is solvable because that's not the case. But I do think we want to bring to light because I think probably many people are listening to this. They would ask the question is that I asked earlier and it was like, well, why? Mm -hmm. Like, why? When you look at when you look at the U.S. being the leading, uh, like you were saying, I, I'll, of course, these definitions come globally. Mm -hmm. You made a statement, I think, in the first part of the episode that was saying that the U.S. is the leading Global influence? No, no, it's, no. I well, misheard you. Well, okay, no, you you are partly correct. Like the U.S., our attitudes toward refugees and the way that our process works does inform a lot of others. Just because we're a nation of influence. So I think that's even probably a misunderstanding that people mm -hmm. have. Probably people listening to the U.S. think that the U.S. is the end all be all. It is not. Yeah. Yeah. So help help shape some of that for us sure. here, because you probably have a better understanding of globally the way that the system works, and then maybe you can even talk about specifically in the U.S. And, and kind of what's involved in that process mm -hmm. again. Yeah, so sure. So the moment somebody becomes a refugee is um, most technically as soon as they leave their border and they've been pushed out forcibly by those reasons we talked about last episode from persecution based on those five groups, um, then uh, it's uh, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a social group. Um, then they are a refugee as soon as they leave their border. And um, this is where it gets tricky because some people, they end up in a, a refugee camp. You have big ones like Zatari in Jordan. You have Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. You have um, um, 
Dadaab and Kenya, these massive camps that house thousands upon thousands of people who've just fled and they knew that was a point they could go to to be safe for a while. You also have refugees who end up um, kind of landing in cities. We call those urban refugees. They're not in in a camp. Um, But the process of getting refugee status in another country is very long and very arduous. So just because they have left and they are officially a refugee, Applying for refugee status allows them certain protections and abilities like to to work, to find housing, um, and and to become a a functioning member of society. And this is where I can speak most specific to the U.S. because every every nation has different refugee policy, even though there's kind of a blanket from United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, Ours is uh, refugees apply for status before being resettled in the U.S., and the people who process all of those um, refugee status applications is USCIS, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. What is the time frame there from the time somebody applies to when they get granted the status? Right. It can take anywhere from six months to yes. a couple of decades. No way. Yes. Yes. So, so let me, I mean, just, yeah. I'm ignorant here. No, so in that interim period, what are they? They, they, they are refugees. Um, but they just, and where are they? Are they still in the camps? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Until they are processed and USCIS has, uh, assured their case and, and it has been assured by a resettlement agency. Um, it's kind of like this big top down connection chain. So you have UNHCR who gathers them up and starts their application. They're interviewed by people here. Then to resettle in the U.S., um, they send it to USCIS, which is filtered down again through another step and again to your um, refugee resettlement agencies like Commonwealth Catholic Charities where I work. Um, So until then, they are in a holding pattern wherever they landed and started that application. Gotcha. Um, and people can be placed anywhere. Um, if they have a, an anchor or a tie in another country, like a family member, they'll try to be sent to that place first. Um, so this process, like I said, it can take anywhere from six months um, to a couple decades. The average amount of time a person is displaced in a camp, take a wild guess. I'd just like to know what you what your guesses are. Well, now that you said that, I- Average, I would say minimum three years. Okay. I'd say five to eight, maybe 10. Okay, you want On average. The average is 17 years. Wow. The average. So that's taking into account the very shortest amount of time, the very longest. My so goodness. your average is 17 years. And, and we actually resettled a family where um, their kids had grown up in the camp. They had been, I, I believe it was close to 30 years, they had been in a camp trying mm-hmm. to get resettled. And so that's a huge misunderstanding now, that people have. Globally, that's the case? Or is are you that's speaking the, specifically United States The here? global average, the amount of time okay. a person spends in a camp okay. before they find a permanent resettlement. Right. Because do we have a lot of refugee camps in the United States or is that more of a global thing to where they come here after the camp? Yeah, we're, we are mostly an end uh, stopping point. Yeah. You know, uh, we can talk about, our, I mean, our Southern border is a different issue because we have, it, speak to that just a minute because I know sure. we're not, we're not trying to muddy the water here, no. but I think maybe help understand, Give us a full picture there of what people are thinking about. So major refugee camps will be in your neighboring countries. Like I mentioned, Kenya, Myanmar, um, Burma, and and Europe. Those are, they have camps there, Greece, Turkey. 
Um, but the U.S. is what is like a final settlement zone for yeah. refugees. Now, on our southern border, um, for immigration processing, we have, um, you know, they're like detainment centers if people are caught crossing illegally. And there's a whole different situation there. But it's starting more and more to look like a refugee camp, um, just trying to sort out um, these people who are trying to come and, and immigrate and make a better life. And, and this is where... Um, what has led to that? What has led it to look more like that? Just a, the massive amount of people that we've seen over the last gotcha. year or so. It's just massive influx. influx. And yeah. even over the last few months, um, with the changeover of administration, people sure. saw an opportunity to come where sure. they'd be more welcomed. And and there's also a definition that we need to know, and it's that of an asylum seeker. So the only difference between an asylee and a refugee is an asylee has already made it to the United States. Um, somehow they got they got here, and it's a multitude of different ways, but they it's like Applying, applying for refugee status after the fact that you're already in the country you want to yeah, seek you, refuge you in. were able to get ahead of the game yeah. out of the camp and somehow you got here and so right. now you're just and like, so they apply I want to be for a asylum. refugee yes yeah. also a protective status yeah. so um i hope that helps kind no, of that, take that, it down no, a little bit no that does that does and then so uh, with all of this time you know spent in in the camps uh, and that's just you know for multitudes of reasons and paperwork handling and interviews and and were you going to say something? No, keep going. Keep okay. going. Keep okay. Going. Um, there's also um, a timeline once they do resettle in the United States. So when refugees first come to us, they have 90 days, um, it's known as our RNP period, where um, they have to be housed, employed with work authorization, and receiving benefits from uh, like social services, and their children must be enrolled in school within those 90 days. So if you think about that, that is like three months to get them established in the sense that right. they can start making their own money and providing for themselves. So the system's big. It's uh, big. There's, you were just mentioning like earlier, it's hard to change it. Yes. But from your perspective of what you've done uh, there with Catholic Charities and just what you've been exposed to, where do you see the the most needed change in that process to be? Ooh. Uh, if trying to pick that out is like pulling well, a piece reason, out of a massive well, Jenga the tower. The <laughs> reason I ask too is like, once again, as we're thinking about like when the stranger becomes your neighbor, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times the attitude is, you know, these, these issues are far away or they're, they're other than us. Mm -hmm. And yet like Stephen brought out the point that, yeah, we are a part of a, of, of a country like, and as citizens in that country, we have abilities, uh, to to advocate mm -hmm. to to see laws legislated for certain changes and i think i think oftentimes it's probably an ignorance of knowing what that is right i mean help me here am i off yeah, base so on that i think a better way to say it would be what are some things that you think could change in the system that is big but has broken down in it what are a couple of things maybe not one thing but what's like a couple of things i think um just trying to uh, expand some time. I this is this sounds counterintuitive, but expanding some timelines that make it a bit um, more flexible for the specific needs that come with each case. I mean, you have a cut and dry like ninety day period where you are right. trying to meet the same needs for an individual or family of three to upwards like a family of twelve. Because um, mm -hmm. we we people resettle in huge groups all the time, um, and just trying to um, give. I think educating people on a global understanding of how this process works is is also how we can um, know better how to change it um, and and mend some some necessary 
pieces of this policy and, and like i said it's like a big jenga tower you you budge one block <laughs> and the rest can come down um because like i said people never stop coming there's never an ease i mean right now we're seeing a little bit of a dip in our resettlement because of the united states is low um ceiling and uh but people never stop there's never not going to be refugees leaving a country no, somewhere. No, that's good. Those are some um, good thoughts. Yeah, and I think one thing we could advocate for is just a more uh, comprehensive ceiling for our resettlement. Like I said, the U.S. resettles one of the least amounts of refugees in the entire world um, because we are that final landing zone. We don't have direct refugees coming in. But we, So even seeing this year, like our country raising that ceiling quite significantly or saying they will. Saying they will. They yeah, haven't done it yet. It's a positive thing. It is. Um, and also having the, the structure to back that up because this, I mean, for, the, for two years now, almost you know, a little over two years, we've been at that 15,000 ceiling. So increasing We don't have it, the structure in place to handle right. the 125. That was my question because, to follow up with you. Yeah, because um, most refugee resettlement places, I know I work for a nonprofit, so we receive grant funding based on the amount of people we are resettling and we receive um, f- funding from the government as well. Gotcha. So the less people you resettle for an extended period of time, if, if they see, oh, you know, Roanoke is not getting refugees, uh, the funding for it gets cut. It gets cut and yeah. you shut down. So what happens, um, and, and several of these agencies over the last two years have closed down. So what happens now when you increase the ceiling and you don't have the refugees yeah. resettlement places to resettle them? That was my question was like, it, by doing that, are we going to be like a mini Germany where we have yeah, zero structure exactly. and it hurts the refugees mm-hmm. and it hurts the housing country, both yeah, like yeah. in Germany's situation, it didn't help the refugees too. I mean, it helped them. Yes. But like, you get what I'm saying, but like, it caused a lot of it other caused issues pain for them and mm-hmm. it caused pain for the country. So you'd want to be careful too, about how you're going about that and raising that ceiling. Cause going from 15 to 125 is a, it's huge big jump because we haven't been it's not anywhere as big as where we had been in the previous because i saw back in 1980 Mm -hmm. i can't remember the exact statistic but i think it was over 250,000 was where our cap used to be back in the 1980s yeah and has consistently come down since then yes Mm -hmm. yes but structurally to come down over 20 years and then to go in one year back up that is a quantum leap in structure for the size of our nation yeah they're gonna have to be really careful in how they and how they structure this Mm -hmm. and how they and how they plan and build up the necessary supports. Um, but it, it is so much, I think, just education because the better educated you are about something, the more you can advocate. Um, to speak to it and, to and be involved it. in it. So because right. I think you bring out some really good points as to some things for us to be informed of. I like would like to kind of segue us now. Yeah. And as we kind of think through practically, you know, because last, last time we talked about this, that um, Jesus's commandment he says he gives a new commandment, but it's not a new commandment. Even Jesus says it was from of old. So so the command to love God and love others, and specifically to love your neighbor as yourself, James picks up on that mm-hmm. in James chapter two. Yeah. Let's let's spend a little bit of time there as we kind of then talk about what do we do when stranger becomes neighbor? Because um what James is dealing with there in in chapter two is he's talking about the royal law. Mm-hmm. He's talking about fulfilling the royal law of scripture. Uh, he says in verse eight, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you fulfill that royal law, you're doing well. But in verse nine, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he works through this. Actually, he flushes out that commandment 
in chapter two and verse 18 by saying, you have faith and I have works. Some of them will say that. He says, but show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so I think what, what do you guys think? What, I mean, uh, help, help, help us under understand what, what James is getting at there of, of how we're to show the love of God, how we're to model, uh, Christ's love, the way that, uh, Jesus was a stranger and he wants us to welcome the stranger among us. Yeah. Well, every time I, every (laughs) time I read James two, I think of the good Samaritan, um, the word neighbor, uh, the Greek word behind neighbor there and in the good Samaritan passage is the same exact Greek word. So we're talking about the same thing. Um, scripture is coordinating here. And also, if you read it like that, you actually see the Good Samaritan passage in James 2, verse 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Well, what did the Good Samaritan do? Well, he showed love, right? He could have shown partiality like the other, um, like the man's own neighbors actually did. But it was he did his it. cultural he did perception probably to have done that. And he went against culture. He went against his upbringing. He went against every stereotype imaginable to minister. And I think that that gives us a structure of which now to look at this and say, well, how do I fulfill the royal law? Well, it's by going against culture. It's by going against uh, what the norm is, what the stereotype is. And it's showing love to whoever I am interacting with, no matter who they are or the circumstance or the circumstance. And that's what we talked about last episode is like, I don't have to agree with how you've gone about getting here. I don't have to approve. I, I don't even have to look in the Bible and say, you know what? You followed the biblical way <laughs> and you followed all the laws and you are in the right. I don't have to, I don't have to agree with that. But what I can do is I can use it as an open door to minister and to share the love of Christ with mm-hmm. them, no matter why they're here. And um, I think you see that in the story of the Good Samaritan about why, he, I mean, he goes out of his way to minister to somebody and he didn't have to. Why? Well, because he interacted with him though. Yeah. And so who are you interacting with? No matter their background, no matter their actions, no matter who they are. Because we would even say that too if we brought it back into our own culture. Well, we need to still love the person who's done wrong and who's committed this crime or that crime, right? And we would say that in our church culture. Well, you got to love the unloved. Well, you gotta that you got to apply that still to the same people, even if they're committing a different type of breaking of the law. You still got to <laughs> apply that love and that ministry to them. It's not just a one way, like one size but fits all. Thing. Don't you think it's a self righteousness that that presses up against that? That you know. I guess we, once again, it's that ethnocentric type of a mm-hmm. perception that Morgan was talking about that, you, you know, we're, we're willing to, um, show mercy, uh, to forbear with people for, for faults of our own, but, mm-hmm. but we're less likely to do that when it's somebody or who has done something that we would think would be abhorrent. Right. Um, well, and I, and I think it's so interesting too, that our, our ethnocentrism. And I'm and not that, saying that about refugees and immigrants. No. I'm just saying that principally. Oh, of, for over, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a huge part of it too. And, and at the, at the deep root of, of favoritism is pride. Um, mm. and, and like you said, like self-righteousness. Prejudice is pride. pride and exactly. And I think it's so interesting how even, um, I would say there is a growing trend of the better for welcoming refugees. There's still so much stigma about caring for an undocumented immigrant, undocumented immigrant. Um, and how we would much rather be merciful and favorable to a refugee because they had far less of choice leaving their country 
while many undocumented immigrants, undocumented immigrants face some of those same issues, they just didn't qualify Come for the, the same status. Yeah. Exactly. And so, um, I yeah. just see, a, I just throughout all this, I just keep coming back to the way that I feel like our human nature is one that we want to have qualifiers for the type of people that we'll mm -hmm. love. And, um, you know, we, we have a certain expectation or a certain whatever, but, but, but once again, mm -hmm. the gospel just takes an ax to that. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I want to reiterate that I am not saying that it, our immigration laws don't matter. Those definitely need reform and it's how you get to like how you become a citizen. That is so important because, you know, becoming, having citizenship in a country, especially like the United States is so um, it's a it's a precious thing, and we mm -hmm. need to guard that. But once again, just talking, like, people are already here, mm -hmm. and we have to. The Bible is yeah. laying the groundwork for those who are here, and it doesn't matter how they got here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not throwing out. You're not throwing it all out. It's no. mercy and justice because mm -hmm. you can't have anarchy. No. And I think that that is a point that our culture has picked up on well, or at least our culture, our bubbles that we grew up in. Well, you can't have anarchy. Well, that's true. You can't have anarchy. So yes, you do need to reform some of the laws and whatnot. But I love what you say. They're here already. So what are you going to do? Like, mm -hmm. obviously, yeah, like <laughs> I get like the whole stigma of like, it's not a vacuum and we still have to work through all that. I get that. But they're here for at least a time period. Mm -hmm. So as a Christian, you don't have to approve of it, mm -mm. but you do need to minister to them. You need to love them. <laughs> and, and I think that's where we're wanting to take this this morning, because yeah. we're talking about that as individuals, how are you loving people as individuals? Yeah. Right. So, so what are, let me just ask you guys, what are, what are some things, I guess, what can we do to see the stranger become our neighbor? Yeah. So there are several practical points that I, you know, as I've grown in my own knowledge and experience, and like I said, I'm still very green at this. I've only been involved deeply in resettlement for about two years on and off. Um, so these are just some things that I have done myself and that I advocate for others to do. And the first one is to get to know your community. Um, I said in the last episode, it took me going to move to a different city to go to college and then coming home and realizing, oh my goodness, we are a refugee city. We're welcoming refugees. And mm. and so there are ways where you can research the makeup of your community and, and find out if the city you live in or the county or the town, if you are a, a city that has resettled refugees or take a look at the immigrant population in your community and start to kind of dig through that diversity. And I think that is something that can be so eye-opening and it gets you outside of your little bubble. And even if you think you know your community, there are, you probably don't know it as well as you think you do. Sure, I'd even say your neighborhood. I mean, oh, think yeah. about your neighborhood. Have you taken opportunity to reach out to people that live right around you mm -hmm. to even find out who's living around you? I mean, I think it's an opportunity that, um, you know, the, the nations are at our doorstep, mm -hmm. very literally. Um, yeah, I, I would completely agree with you. I think secondly is being open to being uncomfortable. Oh, and yeah. I, I, would, I would argue that this is a majority of our American Christianity where you would find a lot of people stuck on is yeah. they don't want to be uncomfortable. Because can we just be honest? Like Morgan, from your personal story earlier, it is uncomfortable to deal with refugees at times. Mm -hmm. 
from some of the stuff that we've been talking about throughout the both episodes, it can be uncomfortable to work with somebody who might be an undocumented immigrant because there might be some uncomfortable conversations that they bring up and they want to talk about with you. Mm -hmm. And then you got to balance out how do I communicate with this person? And then you're like, I just don't want to do it. I'm just not going to do it. And you will be uncomfortable, but being vulnerable and being uncomfortable is a way in which you can show love to those people and have open doors to minister. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I think if you flip the script and think about how uncomfortable people who are not from America originally, how uncomfortable is it to come to a country? And, you know, many people, the the levels of English and, and understanding of cultural differences, like that's... It's, it's a grand scale, but like, think about how uncomfortable they are too. So when you recognize there's mutual awkward. <laughs> well, because I think all the stereotypes that exist, they at least recognize that. Yes. Right? So mm-hmm. they already feel like they're up against the world in yeah. a sense of coming into a country. Mm-hmm. So I think it is, I mean, just how far it goes to to being willing to get outside of what makes you comfortable Mm -hmm. and to embrace and welcome somebody else. I mean, Mm -hmm. somebody from somewhere else. Yeah. And and meeting actual people because you can you can go as far as to to know there's there's people from other cultures in in your community. But until you start to build those relationships, you're still keeping yourself kind of buffered from that. And um, it requires you talking to somebody, going and striking up a conversation. I mean, even I say that, but even like you got that whole cultural thing and the language thing, but, yeah. but there, are, but there are common, I, I would, I would just say there's common ways that transcend culture yes. that, that you can show that you're being welcomed or embraced by. So I'll never forget when we went on a mission trip to Uganda a few years ago and we entered into what was a widow's village mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, I did not know the language. I did not know the customs, but man, we stepped off that bus and they were playing music and they, you know, smiling. And there was this, you felt so welcomed into their home, into their place. And the thing was, I knew nothing of the culture. I knew nothing of the language, but there, but there are those, I don't, I'm falling short of words here, but like there are those emotional, like human traits Mm -hmm. that, that correlate to any culture. I mean, a smile. I mean, there's yeah, there's just, those things that p- you can do or show to make people feel welcomed. Even, you know, when you're in town or you, mm-hmm. you see people of a different nationality. I mean, how is your perception towards them? Yeah. Are, you know, I guess that's what we're trying to say. And, like, And you, you do. You think about those universal traits. And then even, you know, uh, working with um, people who are from um, like Persian backgrounds or Middle Eastern, the hospitality that they bring is something we could all rich. learn. It's I something mean, we don't have in the Americans. No, I mean, and for, for their guests, they roll out the red carpet. Right. I mean, they would give you every last crumb of food and every last ounce of tea in their house just right. to treasure you and show you how honored they are to have you as their guest. So, I mean, we can do so much to to learn from them. And I think that goes into our, our next point is embracing others from elsewhere, you know, right. um, because there's just there's a lot you can do when it fully becomes, OK, I'm not just like recognizing that there are people here. I am I'm welcoming them. There, it's a different yeah. step, you know? Well, there's places that are already involved in this, places yes. that you can donate, volunteer your time for. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even think about those who are listening here in the Roanoke Valley. Um, our church partners with the Friendship House. Yeah. And they are actively uh, housing mm-hmm. uh, people yeah. there and, and opportunities for you to serve and to involve in those ways. So 
it is so much more uh, practical. And I think there are countless opportunities if we just simply have our eyes open yeah. to look for them. And, and I think like take joy in, in learning some of their language, even if it's right. just bits and pieces like a welcome or a greeting or a random word for like a plum. I know that's really fun to like learn words and, and <laughs> because it shows that, you know, you're trying and, and they, right. the connections I've made most deeply is when I, and I say a greeting correctly and people are like, whoa, like she's trying. She mm-hmm. wants to get to know us, learn about their culture, learn about their home countries, right. ask them what they miss about it, what what they enjoy most and what they wish people knew about where they come from. Yeah, we, yeah. we, we, we referenced the family that's in our church uh, that came in uh, as refugees years ago into the States and uh, her mother-in-law who recently, uh, no, her mom, mm-hmm. uh, his mother-in-law who recently trusted Christ. And, you know, that whole process, like Stephen was saying last episode, didn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, there were constant relationships being built and not only welcoming in our church and and making her feel a part of while they were here, but even people going to her house and letting her, you know, make coffee and and talk about, well, some of the things you're talking about, her culture, her language, and simply building those bridges to share the gospel. And, and, you know, which was so awesome to see you know, over a period of, I want to say it was over every bit of a year, maybe a year and a half of, of taking intentional opportunities to build the bridges Mm -hmm. for the gospel, uh, to see her come to faith in Christ. I mean, that just excites me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it is all about just taking all of these practical things that the Lord reminds us of in scripture and, and turning it around to, to live it out. I mean, not to oversimplify, but it, it is that simple, you know? And, and I think, um, the last, the last one, um, to when the stranger becomes neighbor, um, it's just, it's just loving your neighbors. And, um, uh, a few things that I would just try to remind people is that, um, these people are just as real as you are That's with right. lives as complex and as That's deep right. and full. Same emotions. Same emotions, same hopes and dreams for their children. Um, and really, you have much more common ground than you think you Certainly do. do. The Certainly. common ground definitely outweighs the culture, the language. Um, and they they possess a strength that has come from being tried by fire. Um, and yet they continue to hope. And sometimes they just don't know what to place their hope in. And there is a door for the gospel to Certainly. give the eternal hope that is in Christ. And um, just to be a part of their lives, to you know, helping them regain their dignity and their hopes and their dreams, we have a chance for that. And the Lord calls us to step up and do it. That's great, Morgan. Well, thank you so much. I just want to thank you for for helping us today and the last couple of weeks as we thought through some of these things. It's my joy. I know it is. It has challenged me. Uh, it's been a personal challenge to me. Stephen, why don't you take us home this morning? Uh, wrap us up here. Yeah, I would just leave you with the fact of these things are not um, going to be solved overnight on a national scale. So do your part personally mm-hmm. in your life. And yes, advocate for change and um, yes, figure out what you believe is um, how where you land in the issues of uh, immigration and refugee status. And yes, learn all those things. But on a personal note, you can learn all the things in the world. And if you don't go do anything, um, you're still guilty um, because James mentions that in James chapter two, um, faith without works is dead. And uh, you can say one thing, but if you do another, you're still at fault. Thank you for listening to Where We Land, Christ, Culture, and the Church.
Well, hey, listen, we're so glad to have you with us here on the podcast today. And if there's something that we've talked about on the show today or in recent weeks that uh, you'd like to know more about, feel free to reach out to us at podcast at whereweland.org. Maybe Morgan can help uh, engage with you over these topics a little better uh, in a personal way. And also, if you have not yet done it, but you are listening to Where We Land Faithfully, would you take some time to go on Apple podcast uh, to rate and review the podcast? We'd really appreciate uh, your, your, your feedback there and an opportunity uh, to pass this podcast along to more people. So listen, we hope you'll join us here next time. We'll see you then.